I'm Mariangela Abeo, and this is the Face to Faces podcast, a conversation series that provides a platform focusing on the LGBTQ plus and POC communities and their allies in the areas of activism, politics, mental health, arts and entertainment, and community, where we discuss the human experience in our ever-changing world. The goal of this space is to remind you that while you may have moments where you feel isolated or alone, there is always an incredible community of people here that is safe. We all connect to people at our deepest pains and our greatest joys. And in this space, we're here for those moments and everything in between. I'm so glad you're here. Take a seat next to me. It's always open. Now, let's lean in. Okay, I am so excited to have my guest here, the amazing and beautiful and stunning cabaret and burlesque performer, producer, artist, all of the things, Luminous Pride. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. And also, I feel like not everybody like goes to effort on the back, like their backdrop, but your backdrop just kind of is perfect, I guess, with the photos <laughs> and the plants. You know, that's been one of the things that I've been really focusing on during the COVID quarantine that we're in right now is lighting because, you know, we're in the same space. So how can we switch up our space, make it more dynamic and interesting and lovely to be in, but modular and easy to change while the mood changes? Right. I'm so glad that you did that. Good. Um, Thank you. It's beautiful. And the lighting. Ooh. I'm here for all of it. It's gorgeous. Well, first of all, before we do anything, I want to do an emotional check-in because, you know, we're, the world is a, it's a very different place than it was, you know, seven months ago, however long we've been doing this. Um, Lots has happened. Um, How are you today? How are you right now? How was your week? My week was really interesting. Um, I've switched back for for the month to working full time at a natural foods co op for my for my day job, you know. And it's you know it's a nice way to make sure my bills are paid, but it doesn't feed my soul. Um, and I'm also preparing for a huge life shift. I'm going back to school for the first time in twelve or thirteen years, uh, starting on Tuesday. So that's just a few days away, and I'm really excited. But I'm also just really nervous. You know, I'm nervous to know if my attention span has been reduced because I've been able to be self-employed and, and self-motivated for a decade. Um, I'm nervous because I'm all of a sudden going to have a very set schedule when I'm when I'm used to being able to sort of do what I want on my own time. Right. Um, yeah. I also feel, you know, it's, it's weird because I'm my personal life, things very close to me, things with my partners, things with my work, things with school are all very good, but then everything in the world around me is seemingly crumbling. Right. And I have mm-hmm. this tear between going out and helping with medical for protests and protesting myself versus staying home, making sure I'm hydrated and well fed so that I can get up early and work on my first assignment. So it's sort of a up and down, back and forth. And of course, worrying about um, either transmitting or catching catching COVID-19 is, is part of my daily life as well. So it's a lot but uh, I'm managing, I'm dancing around a lot, 
you know, in my shower and watering my plants, which I see you have a ton of as well. (laughs) Find your joy somewhere, right? That's where we found it. Exactly. Well, uh, school's exciting. School is so exciting. I'm ready for a career change. Um, not that I am ready to stop performing or producing. I love performing. Um, I've, I've toured to 18 countries as the Luminous Pariah, as my alias. It's been so much fun. It's It brings me so much joy. But it's not enough to give me a stress-free lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, the finances around performing just don't work out in the cabaret world. You always have to have something. And I've I've succeeded in having other other day jobs to kind of keep me um, going. But Seattle is very expensive, as you know. And it's, it's just, it's gotten to the point where I really, really, really need to level up another career on the side so that I can continue performing when I want to rather than, you know, doing gigs because I have to do them to take the money for it. Um, I feel like that's being keeping my integrity as an artist um, yeah. will will happen if I'm able to create a create another career. So I'm diving into the world of graphic design. That's so exciting. Do you find yourself like excited, like on a level of like we used to get excited for school? Like, do you have your outfit picked? Oh, but it's all virtual. But still, do you have the top picked? You know what I mean? Like, I would be thinking about that actually. <laughs> Exactly. I do. I do have my top picked out. I was also thinking maybe I should wear pants just because (laughs) I want to have that feeling of when you get to change into sweatpants later on. Yes. Like I'm I'm already thinking about what I'm going to do to psychologically separate my school time from my home time, even though it's already going to be in, all of it will be in my bedroom. (laughs) But still that's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Sweatpants o'clock will probably be about 3 or 4 p.m. every day. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Well, you're you're known throughout the city and, and so many other cities around the world as, of course, Luminous Praia and for your burlesque work. Can you tell me a little, I mean, I would love to give the listeners a, a little bit of background on you and your, because I knew you because I'm a fan of Waxy Moon and I'm a fan of that whole crew. And then Josh Black, who's another podcast host and a friend was like, you look at who I just had on. You should do this. And I was like, oh, yes, I've been wanting a personal connection. So um, I would love a little history on you. Great. Well, well, first of all, it's so exciting to actually meet you in the flesh, finally. Oh, <laughs> I know. I feel like we've been talking a lot. <laughs> right. I would say in the flesh like I just did, but it's still virtually. But yeah, it's closer than ever. It's so close. Um, well, I, okay, going back from the very beginning, I moved to Seattle in 2005 in the fall to study theater. And I went to theater school for about a year here. It's a very expensive school, and I don't come from a family that's able to really help out a lot financially. So I told myself, I'll take one year off, and then I'll go back to school after that, and I'll continue. And I, my goal was to be an actor. I wasn't sure if I was gearing towards film or theater yet, but I had all of my training was in dance and um, stage presence and physical theater. Um, and then during my years, during my summers off, I was going back home to Southeast Alaska. I grew up in Juneau, Alaska, and I was a whale watching tour guide. So I was learning a lot about biology. That's amazing. It was so much fun. I was absolutely fascinated by, by marine mammals, particularly, but in the natural world that we live in. And I was noticing too, you know, as climate change is, is, really, really apparent in Southeast Alaska with all of our major glaciers that are receding, I was thinking, okay, well, what if I take my set of developed theatrical skills 
and kind of tune them, sort of use that toolbox and sort of tune it to be more for um, environmental education. So I dropped all things creative and I had a little funeral for my artistic self. And I said, okay, it was fun. That's in the past. Now it's time to be a serious scientist. I want to go to um, a community college and get my prereqs out of the way so that I can study ecology somewhere and be a scientist. Um, so I tried that, but you know, again, working full time and doing all these other things is, is difficult. So I was working as a barista, waking up super early in the morning and I was serving espresso to ungrateful people. And I was, taking a uh, full course load and I just burnt out. I, there there mm. weren't enough hours in the day to complete very simple assignments because I had to get up and, and pull shots. So I made myself another deal. I said, okay, I'm going to take spring quarter and summer quarter off. And then in the fall, I'll go back when I'm ready, you know, one class at a time. And about two weeks into spring quarter, I discovered a food themed burlesque show. And I had never seen a burlesque show. I had never met a burlesque performer. I didn't really, I honestly didn't know what burlesque was. When I, when I heard the word burlesque back then, this is probably, what, 2008? I would think feather fans and satin gloves and right. red velvet things. But there wasn't really anything for me right, in right. that so seeing this food theme show blew my mind because the music that the performers danced to was was neo and interesting and different. And the way that every act seemed to be a miniature narrative. It was a story. It had a beginning, a middle, an end. They had a character or a persona and their costume came off in layers and everything was coordinated. They had their own choreography. It was just so impressive. And what really hit me over the head was the comedy. I had never seen eroticism presented in such a complete way before. I'd, I'd only really thought of eroticism as um, dirty and taboo, right. you know? Um, not that I had an upbringing that really was oppressive, but I feel like growing up in any sort of semi-conservative area like Alaska or like much of this country that we live in, the United States, um, you sort of you have to kind of come into your own on your own. There's not a lot of assistance right. in that way. And that was the beginning of, of me becoming absolutely obsessed with the world of burlesque. <laughs> so I started going to see as many burlesque shows as I could and, um, you know, chatting with the performers when I could. And one time, uh, a venue called the Can Can down in Pike's Place Market, um, a performer accidentally knocked my beverage off of the table onto the floor as they were passing through. And when they were coming back right before intermission, I said, hey, I'm sorry, but do you mind if, um, if we exchange phone numbers? Because I would love to ask you more about this world and how I could possibly become involved. And that performer was um, really a gender fluid human named Ultra that has mm -hmm. since moved to San Francisco. But back then, they really, really showed me that there was a place in the cabaret scene because their persona was not hyper-masculine and not ultra-feminine, but it had elements of both and it was somewhere in between. And that really, really resonated with me. Um, so they invited me to be a part of a burlesque-style recycled fashion show in a performance art collective in San Francisco, and I flew down with them, and I, I had a mind-blowing experience, and I decided, you know what, I want to be a performer. I, maybe I'll be an environmental educator later, but in my 20s, I want to be a performer. So I dropped 
all of the things that um, told me that I had to be in school. And I just became, you know, um, enthralled. And I just tried to learn as much as I could. I went to the Academy of Burlesque here in Seattle and kind of had a performance opportunity at the end of that, uh, where I met Waxy Moon, who you know as well, correct? Yeah, they're amazing. What an amazing performer and human. Waxy is so fantastic. And Waxy invited me to be in their show. And um, I was in that once. And then it just kind of, you know, it's a snowball effect. Especially in Seattle. So, yeah. Once somebody sees you yeah. on, with some, and somebody else has, has uh, vouched for you in something like that, then it all begins. Right. I feel like Seattle has a big personality, but it's actually kind of a small city. Very small. I'm born and raised here and I'm very like, I'm, we're, we're very rare, but I can see, you know, I see it evolve and I'm definitely one of those Seattleites that's not mad about the growth and not mad about it changing. I just think it's part of a big city becoming a big city. Um, But the burlesque scene, I'm just new to it. I'm new to it because I wanted to do burlesque. I'm new to it because I thought I was going to a, I thought I was going to a drag show. Someone invited me to, um, it was at the, the, um, it was a place in Belltown and I, it turned out to be a fluid gender fluid boylesque show. And I was like, (gasps) I was so obsessed. And I was like, I want to be up there. I want to do this, but I was so scared and had so much body shame. And I think that um, it's, it does wonders for so many people things that we can all be struggling with burlesque does. Um, and I'm interested to see what happened. You know, I'm sure you had a lot of things planned, travel plans and things and, um, how you pivoted. Well, that's a big question. You know, I, um, I have since built this career with all of my time, I would say spare time, but honestly, there is no spare time when you're an artist, as you know, (laughs) we live and we breathe as we create and vice versa. Um, I had this amazing tour planned this spring, right before COVID in May, I was headlining a festival in Barcelona and I was teaching. And then from Barcelona, we were going, um, my co-performer, Moscato Extatique and myself, were going to Budapest where I have friends. I love Budapest. Although the Hungarian government is is not my favorite, but mm. uh, as a city, it's wonderful. So we were going to spend some time there, possibly perform, but mostly just enjoy ourselves and learn more about the history um, of how the city came to be. And then from there, we're going to Berlin. And Berlin is one of my all-time favorite cities. For a while, I had planned to move on the German-American Artist Visa Program and, and use Berlin as a hub to live and work and travel around Europe as a cabaret performer and producer. Um, and then I got married to someone who wants to stay, you know, a little more a little more nasty than I wants to stay here and then became even more connected to someone who lives in Montana, who I'm dating and they're amazing. And I, I can't see living far apart from either of them now. So it was a bummer to have to dash that tour, but it was also a really great moment in time for me to reflect on what's been working and what's not been working for the last 10, 11 years. Mm -hmm. And um, what has been working has been traveling, you know, feeling like a rock star and, and really, really just enjoying myself, learning about all of these different cultures and foods um, while I'm also spreading my joy around the world and spreading my own effervescence. And it feels great to be appreciated and to be loved and to be giving wherever I go. And um, it's also nice, though, to think about, okay, 
if I were to add to my life, what do I need to add? And that's financial stability. So going back to school as a graphic designer, I feel like is a way for me to still um, indulge in being an artist and still feed that part of myself, which is the vast majority of my personality is, is um, the, the right side of the brain. But it's it's an area that in a growing tech city like Seattle, um, there are there are jobs that allow you to to live um, out of poverty. <laughs> right, which there's so, not a lot of that. So you, what's also great about this, uh, you know, trying to find silver linings in this um, pandemic and quarantine is that a lot of live performers have moved to virtual performances. And it was, I was, when I did the episode with Audra Boo, we talked about her, uh, Yes Pet, no. Um, what was, what's the collective's name, that burlesque collective. Um, and uh, they, they basically did a live performance and it was my first time going to a live performance and kind of towards the beginning of the podcast. And I was so excited because I was, in my pajamas and I wasn't wearing a bra and I was sitting on the couch and I was high as fuck. And I was like, why can't, this is brilliant. This is, it's become so much more accessible, especially to those of us that travel, perform, do public speaking. When you are preparing for an event or doing an event, you don't have as much time and capacity to go out at night and support your friend shows. It's really hard. And so having this kind of new option is not, I mean, of course, it's actually includes now the different abilities as well. There are people that could not go to clubs at night and could not do that. And now it's created that. And also people that maybe have anxiety issues or issues with cr- large crowds, you know, and um, I think it's become more accessible now. Are you seeing that with your shows doing virtual? Because I know you just had one, right? Yeah, yeah. We, my group, Mont Carousel, um, has been having shows since the very beginning. I think it was maybe a month into quarantine. We had our first show. Uh, we called. We we started calling this series Six Foot Cabaret, and each show has a different Perfect. subsequent title, a little subtitle below that. And it's uh, it's been interesting because, of course, it means as the creators of of this digital content, we're having to learn more about audio design and about the internet, um, some video editing. We're having to learn about lighting and all of this technological stuff that, as a performer, we haven't really had to focus on that. We just get to tell, you know, the lighting designer, can we have a little bit of red at three minutes and thirty seconds, and then at three thirty five a bright wash, right? So it's been all of this learning, but the accessibility factor has been fantastic. We've had folks, like you were saying, who have anxiety disorders or have um, bodies that don't want to be or can't be out in large crowds or out at, you know, two in the morning or who live in other thousands of miles away that can tune in to our shows and are now able to, to experience what we have to put out for them. And that's been really, really cool. So yes, silver linings. Cheers to silver linings. Yes, I know. I feel like I need. I should have gotten some champagne for this. Clearly, I'm <laughs> anything for champagne in the afternoon. It's a weekend, so here I am. Um, I love that. So, are you seeing? So, because you know, we're we're getting into this new place where, like I told you offline, my daughter's a performer a ballet dancer. And so they just started their season all virtual, their first virtual season ever. And they're rehearsing in pods and then recording. And then the subscribers can watch it 
the new pieces. So I don't know what the future is holding for live performances, but I was telling someone the other day, I wonder because of these silver linings, if we're going to be able to see a future of more intimate performances that cost more money, that are a more VIP experience, because we can't have huge crowds anymore, maybe we start like advertising, you know, we're only letting, you know, 25 people into this show and it's going to cost you $200 a head, but it's, this is the VIP experience that you're going to get. You know what I mean? I do. I know what you mean. And I've been thinking about that myself. And I, I feel like we're all trying, at least us producers are really trying hard to figure out what that is and what platform we can sort of use to help uh, facilitate that. And I'm, I'm really excited um, by, by the current state of, of how we're all discovering technology and how we're all using it and learning to use it. Um, I know that a lot of performers are really frustrated with having to figure, figure all this out, but I'm trying my best to see the potential in it and to try to not get overwhelmed by all of the options and just narrow it down a little bit. And, you know, like you were saying, um, these experiences that we, we wouldn't have had if we, we wouldn't have if quarantine were, were to not have happened. Um, and I'm thinking most recently about uh, an augmented reality projection situation that I created for myself. That's something that I would never have thought of if mm-hmm. I hadn't been spending so much time thinking about how I could create an intimate experience for for someone who's viewing me on a screen versus someone who's four feet away from me. I get to choose who I walk up to in a bar, in a crowd, crowd, in a club, on a stage, but on the screen, you know, it's, it's so much more difficult to relate to people um, Mm -hmm. and to connect. So I've been figuring out, okay, well, what can I do to really take things to the next level? You know, and I, I really do believe that after this, we're still going to be using some of the technology, some of these ideas and ways of thinking um, of how to tailor our performances or how to heighten those performances, and then also create completely different experiences. Maybe we'll have at one point, again, huge shows like we used to have, but then we'll also have smaller VIP um, experiences that will be completely different. Well, and hope it, hopefully streaming for people can continue regardless. Right. Because I think that's added something that people didn't think about. We didn't think about it before. It's like either you go to the show or you don't. You're like you miss it. It's live. Totally. Totally. And I'm curious to see too, streaming wise, you know, how many people are watching stream shows because we all have to, and how many people are watching them because they are finally getting a chance to see the show or because they just, they enjoy it. It's, it's a great way to view a show. And I know of course it's going to depend on how it's produced and and the production company um, performers, but yeah, I'm curious to see what happens at, at the end of all this wild year that we have ahead of us. (laughs) I mean, I think all of my, well, I have a few 2020 goals that I was actually able to meet, but the rest I've just pushed to next year because there's no, the first year ever I decide to write them down and this is what happens. So maybe I don't do that again. Um, So we talked a little bit offline and and you mentioned earlier, um, we're both part of this very slowly but rapidly actually growing poly poly scene here polyamorous scene and you know josh and i josh black and i have talked a little bit and um there there are these communities that i'm like kind of trying to be part of here in seattle but i'm also noticing it's kind of a trend 
Um, it's becoming polyamory is becoming a bit trendy. Um, but I'm not mad at it. Actually, I think that it's a really healthy way of uh, creating relationships and living. Um, and while in the beginning, for me, it was quite shamed. Now it's like, oh, that's cool, is the response I'm getting now, which is hysterical oh. to me. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see the same? Do you see it growing in the Seattle community? I do see it growing, but also part of me wonders how much of it is actually growing and how much of it is actually more of us just being more free and open with stating that we're poly or sharing that information. Like you, I was a little more withheld with that. Um, I don't know necessarily that it was all rooted in shame. For me, it was more of not of that guarding of, of information, right. And partitioning information, wanting to have control over how it was viewed and who knew what about me so that I could make sure to distill my essence and say, no, I'm a pure bright light. I'm a wonderful person. You should just worry about that. Don't worry about what I'm doing on my personal time. And I think that polyamory is, has always been around, right? It's been around for, for ages, but it is more of a popular thing now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to shy away from the word trendy because when I hear trendy, I think that, well, it's, it's a phase or it's something that will pass. It's something that may be a little bit hollow. And I wonder too, maybe that's a thing. Maybe that is happening right now. Maybe people are being irresponsibly poly where they say they want to be poly, but right. they're not necessarily doing it in a responsible way that protects everybody's emotions and creates loving relationships, but maybe it's a little more selfish. So I don't know. I, um, I, I'm a very clear communicator with my partners and I just try to keep it that way and cross my fingers that everyone else is doing that. How do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I, it's interesting because I'm, you know, on, I had like a, a breakup right before the quarantine. And so I took some time by myself because we've, I've recently started living alone. My primary nesting partner and I have decided to, you know, neither of us, we've been, we had been together since we were 20. So neither of us had lived together or lived apart and had our own space. And so when we made this space, it really kind of saved things and um, allowed me to really have that freedom that I needed. And what's happening is, as I, and it's hard to date in quarantine, but it's more about communicating um, and having social distancing and figuring out people's quirks. I'm realizing that a lot of people are like, I'm open to it. I've never dated anybody that's poly. And I'm like, oh, okay, like, let's talk about this because it's not, I think I've run into a lot of people that think being open and being poly is the same thing. And I think right. that there are degrees, but I also think it's very easy to shame me um, or shame someone saying, oh, so how many people do you sleep with? And how many this? And I said, it has nothing to do with sex and everything. Polyamory just means lots of love. Like it, it's about finding different partners that fill different things for your life. And there's some asexual poly partners. There's queer, there's non, there's heterosexual, like there's all, there's all different types. And so for me, it's been really trying to educate myself and educating people that I talk to and that I'm just trying to spend time with to decide if I want them to be a partner or not. Um, because I, like you, I travel a lot. I work a lot, even though I'm at home now, I'm doing virtual speeches now and virtual events. And, um, my time is important and valuable. And so I, it's not about just having, random people here and there. It's about investing time in someone. And so I wish people would do a little bit more, especially the boomer era. 
um, having <laughs> having the discussions because I'm the ex gen, and so most parents are my, my my parents are boomers, and so having conversations with them around polyamory, it's kind of like, you know, so you have lots of girlfriends and boyfriends, and I'm like. Ugh. It's more than that. Like, let's let's deepen this. You know what I mean? Like, it's just. I guess yeah. I I I tend to cringe a little bit when people just make light of it because I think that it's polyamorous people have to have such a a, a gift for equality and equal time and being able to really compartmentalize their lives for people and for each other. And I think that it's it's an art. It really is. And, and it's it's both sides of the brain. It's the left and the right. It's an art. It's also, like you were mentioning, extreme time management skills, extreme communication skills. And I, you know, I everything you just said completely resonates with me. And I, I feel like for for the reasons of people not really understanding and not being learned or don't just don't know, that's that's been my biggest reason for not telling anybody and everybody that I'm poly. Because I don't want to have to then worry about what they're thinking, you know. Not that not that I should be, but I do, right? I yeah. I want to. I worry about what people think about me and how they're perceiving me. So it's it's just hard, you know. And I found myself like you when I meet a new person who's like, "Oh, hey, I really like you. I really like you too." I'm Polly. Okay, I'm open to that. I don't really know what that means. Well, here's a book. <laughs> Oh, how'd you like that? Interesting. Here's another book. How'd you like that? You know, like it's right. like, it's a process. Well, and <laughs> I'm even wondering. if you meet somebody that's poly, you very, very, very likely will have different views on being poly too. And different setups, different setups for different people, right? Yes. I'm learning about all of those setups now because I'm learning that I was kind of using terminology in the beginning that was, you know, primary partner and secondary partner and things like that, because it just made more sense to me. But that, um, that kind of anarchy relationship anarchy is not always, uh, welcomed, but there's just, there's so many ways to do it. And I, I do feel like, you know, we've got an, a grown daughter now and I'm trying to explain to her and I'm trying to use polyamory as a form of empowerment for her because I truly believe that it, it it empowers you because you know uh the fact that my primary partner and I have moved separately she's like well why why would you even do that why and I said because like let's just think about it for a minute what law tells you that you have to live with a partner there's nothing. There's none. W- society tells us we need that. Society tells us we need a marriage and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. And you have to live together for the rest of your lives and you have to die next to each other. Like that's what society tells us. Yeah, And for me, it's like, I care about my partner so much more when I'm living in my own space now. It's like, I, I recognize what they give me because on the times that they're not here, I get that. And so now I'm kind of navigating this poly space as a solo poly, but not, I don't know if that works, but as someone who is, who's navigating it autonomously and it's, it's so empowering. And so I'm trying, she's like, Oh, I don't want people to think like I'm a slut. And I'm like, okay, so that's a societal based thing. Like we're trying to kind of unlearn her and just be like, okay. Cause she, it's interesting because when I first told her I was Polly, which was probably uh, two years ago and she was 21, 22, um, her first instinct, because she just knows me and her, her 
father, um, her first instinct was to slut shame me, which is hmm. shocking. To, I mean, we're best friends. So her response, but I was very like Beyonce in the elevator. I was like, keep up. I'll let you just do this. You continue. <laughs> and then when you're done, I'm going to fucking let you know how this is. Cause she, she was kind of like, isn't this convenient for you? And I was like, Ooh, society does this. And I said, don't put that on someone like that is so harmful. And she was like, oh, she kind of got it after that. But it's amazing, especially in this next generation going up. Um, it's it's a lot more prevalent now. And so she's learning about it. And she's like, I have a friend that's poly. And I'm like, amazing. And so now, of course, she's looking at it differently because there's a peer. That's so neat. Yeah. I mean, the the outcome is neat. Yeah. 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 No, but I think it's a, it was a good conversation. I was happy because I was, you know, secure enough in where I was to kind of go, Okay, that's your view. Cool. I'll let you finish your thought. <laughs> right. And you would have to be, right? As a parent, you would have to be secure in order to not be debased by that conversation and question your life choices. Right. And I was, you know, I did, we did a podcast interview with uh, amazing performer, Brick House. And uh, we were talking about, you know, talking about sex and talking about sex workers and talking about polyamory and talking about all of that to the younger generation and how we navigate that. And, you know, my tactic has always been, if you can't say the words, if you can't look at me and say the word blowjob, there's a, you shouldn't be doing it. Like, <laughs> like if you're not mature enough, if you're laughing when you say it and you think it's gross, then maybe you're not ready. Like, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about these hard words. Like, and so um, Brick was saying the same. She was like, yeah, or just read like sex zines or like porn magazines, like get them to read things out loud because it makes, it takes that stigma away. Right. Right. Well, the stigma is real. I think it's, you know, you mentioned this younger generation. I do feel like times are changing very slowly and for the better, but it's hard, you know, it's really hard. And, um, every generation is always going to have to go through those moments of learning about their own bodies, their hormones, their gender, their sexuality, and all of those intersections. It's crazy. It's wild. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'm 30, how old am I? 33. And I still feel like I'm very much discovering and learning who I am. And, you know, going back to structures of polyamory and open relationships, what do I want? And is it working for me? You know, and it has, and I've, I'm like kind of slowly, everything is coming into fruition, coming into taking shape and then making better and better choices, you know? And a few years ago, um, I was just with my husband and I was like, you know what? I'm done dating other people. It's been a wild ride and I'm good. I'm good. I'm not going to date anyone else. And then about maybe six weeks later, I met these two wonderful people. It's <laughs> like, okay, all right. All right. Okay, How are we next time? <laughs> right, you know, since then, of course, it's like whittling things down. And how do I, how do I give people what they need and, but still get what I need, right? How do I take care of myself? And I feel like navigating um, emotions through sex and relationships is also one of those, one of those tricky things. Yeah. And I think, I, I know that you're the podcast with Josh that I listened to part of it was a lot around the kink scene. And that's a scene that I'm, um, I'll be super honest, I'm a little terrified of. I come from a sexual assault background. And so definitely on in my circles, I'm, I definitely tell people I'm very vanilla kink. 
but it's, it's fascinating to me and it's very intriguing. And my therapist thinks a lot of it would be helpful for me actually in many ways, but I'm very, I'm like dipping my toes in very gently. Um, even though I guess I come off way more dominant than other people think. So, cause so I get a lot of people coming to me thinking I already am kind of deep into the scene, which they're very sad to find out I'm not, <laughs> but you know, it's also, I think that it's a whole side of it. Uh, when we had that whole conversation in that episode, we were talking about trauma and, and anybody who's experienced any sort of sex or relationship trauma, um, how the kink community can be so helpful and so healing. Yeah. Healing is such an important word that you mentioned there. And, you know, you're talking about trauma and, and kink and I, for the longest time was so afraid of inflicting pain or discomfort. I like to refer to it as um, because it's agreed upon on another human being. It's the worst idea as someone who is, who has been um, injured as, you know, as a child, as someone who's, who's been abused, the idea of, of hurting someone else was the worst thing to me. You know, it's that's the, that's a terrible, I don't want to hurt somebody. It's the terrible, the most terrible idea. Um, so the world of exploring that has been really an adventure really? and it's been so healing for me, you know, and I was, I was actually having this conversation with a friend the other day. Um, we were talking about the difference in touch and who it's for the difference between, you know, if I'm putting my hand on your arm, who is that touch for? Am I touching you for you or am I touching you for me? And I, I believe that the person receiving that touch can actually feel the difference. And I was explaining how I was apprenticing a friend of mine to kind of learn sort of the world of, of, of um, domination physically so that they could be my assistant. This was a few years back. And they were having a little difficulty um, partition, uh, partitioning their feelings of resentment and anger and frustration from the actions of striking our submissive. And they allowed themselves to kind of get carried away and, you know, essentially hit this person and allow that to be an outlet for taking out their anger. And while we still kept it in the range of my submissive's um, pain thresholds, and I made sure that that was the case, afterwards, when this friend of mine had left the room, my submissive turned to me and was like, hey, what, what was going on there? It was very clear you know, they, they could feel the difference in touch. Um, even though it's the same, even if it's the same strike, you can sort of feel that difference. So yeah, it's, it's, it's all related and there's all this kind of, um, I would say gray area, but that's not interesting. It's like a colorful spectrum. (laughs) Everything is interlaced and intertwined. That's fascinating. I didn't think I'm a touch is my love language. And so I'm very, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, well, are you dumb? Are you sub? What are you? And I said, can I just use the word like very like bare bones, primal, like I, it's more me. I don't think I'm either. I don't, I think I'm very verse or very fluid. Um, and uh, I do think that you can tell when someone wants to touch you and when they don't. And I think that's fascinating. I never thought of it that way, but I was, I remember being invited into a kind of dungeon of sorts And they gave me like this list of things and said, you need to make sure that you're okay with seeing all of these things before you come. And I was like, and I started reading down and I realized like halfway down, I was not okay seeing all of those things. 
because in my head, they weren't being done at the level that you were explaining with, um, you know, consent and you know what I mean? It still felt very violent to me. Um, And I realized those were things that those were my issues and it had nothing to do with what was happening in that space. Right. Right. And that's, that's a lot of work. I realized I had to backpedal. I was like, Ooh, I'm not actually ready for that. We're going to wait to unpack that. And like, I need to unpack some more for myself first and figure out why that triggers me the way it is. But I do think that there's something really magical that could be harnessed to heal people around sexual assault in that space. I totally agree with you. And it's, it's on both sides, right? It's, it's the person who's undergone abuse that is, um, you know, first setting foot into a space like that and learning, you know, like you were saying, seeing a list of things that they might see. Wow. How do you feel about all of those things? And I was the same way too. Um, for me, it was a little different. Like I, my first experience in um, a more sort of open kinky situation was a surprise sex party. Like I didn't realize that it was going to turn into a sex party, but it kind of did. And it was gentle, you know, it was like a gradual thing. And I I definitely had the option to leave, but it was still like, Oh wow. Um, Oh, Oh, Oh wow. It there were a lot of moments. (laughs) That's happening. that's happening. Am I still comfortable? Oh, wow. That's happening. Am I still comfortable? Um, and I feel like it's, it's good to, to know, you know, some basics in advance, but also to know maybe, you know, who, who you can expect. Um, let me backpedal a little bit, uh, going back to learning on both sides, like learning, just coming into things, but also if you're deciding to participate, who are these other folks? If you are deciding, especially to be um, a submissive person, do you have a previous history with this uh, dominant person? Do you know about their control, their self-control? You know, have they been on any sort of substances or have they been drinking this evening? Um, you know, and it's, I feel like it's very important. But what I'm also learning that in this world of kink, and then again, having this sort of cross, a little bit of crossover into the poly world, a lot of these folks are very, very responsible and really communicative and very loving. And all of this, almost all of this touch is coming out of a place of love. And I think that's, that's the key when it comes to healing trauma of any kind. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good point. And I think that, um, I think where the fears come from people like me is just simply in the unknown. And I think there's so much of, you know, everything in life, whether it's relationship, sex, you know, family, we get triggers from things in the past. And so I think for me, I've done a lot, you know, one thing I've noticed as I'm have been in the poly world more and dating more poly people, especially in the last five years, I've noticed, um, I love the amount of the younger generations in their twenties and thirties are the consent level is so blatant. Like I'm not, listen, I was ex-gen. I was raised in a totally different generation where guys were, and girls, there was no, that, that didn't happen. Somebody didn't walk up to you and say, can I kiss you? And I, when that was said to me the first time, I was like, who are, what? <laughs> like that, is, and at first I was like, doesn't that take like the excitement away from it? And then I was like, no, actually, I really appreciated being asked. And there was something hot about it. But I think that, again, that's just a whole different level. And this whole generation, somebody called them uh, the millennials uh, overly uh, consensual. And I was like, okay, A, I don't think that's possible. (laughs) Right. 
but I love that. I love that they're over that they're trying to make sure that they have consent for everything because maybe they're trying to fucking erase the bullshit that happened, you know, in the boomer and X gen years possibly. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, you know, it, it also took me a little time to to get used to um, seeing people who are super communicative about boundaries as well. This one particular amazing uh, person who's still in my life, not in a partner capacity, but is is amazing. Um, they would ask me, you know, when we first started dating, can I, can I kiss you? Can I put my hand on your leg? Is it okay that I hold your hand right now? And that was really great. But then it got to a certain awkward point where we'd been dating for a little while and it was, can I kiss you? Can I put my hand? And I was like, yes. So just, just assume that this is a yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point we started calling it like, you have my rolling consent for X, Y, and Z in these situations, you know? And of course you want to check in. How do you feel about PDA, you know, public di- displays of affection? How do you feel about PDA in places where I'm going to be well-known where, where it's my scene? How do you feel about PDA in your scene together? And these sort of different levels and different areas of consent for different things. And I grew to really, really love that you know and like you were saying there is something hot about that yeah. also it kind of builds anticipation can i kiss you you're like oh my god uh, here it comes yes yeah. <laughs> but, and, and yeah. to the, the opposite side of that i've i've been you know had people that i was dating say to the effect of like when we start hanging out for an evening just a heads up i actually am not in the space to have sex tonight and mm-hmm. taking that off the table at first, like part of old kind of triggered me was a little bit offended. Like at first I was like, Ooh, why would you say that? And then I was like, actually that has just taken a pressure off the evening that I'm not wondering if, and wanting to read signs and you know what I mean? It was kind of lovely. I was like, Oh, I'm glad that that was kind of put forward. That was nice. You know? And I think that there's something to be said about that level of, I really want to spend the evening with you and I'm excited to have a good time, but this is where I am. Exactly. And it's just being so open and honest. And then it allows you to be authentic as well. And like you were saying, not worrying and wondering. And then of course being, you know, going back to myself, I'm thinking about myself in these situations, um, not preparing my own body, right. Just being like, Oh, cool. Now I can just drink a cup of tea and grab my favorite documentary. And that's what, you know, like that's going to be our evening. exciting on a on a different plane but equally as exciting as physical contact with somebody yeah i think that it's it's something that i'm still learning about but i do think that it's really valuable especially in relationships because i think you know my primary partner and i were together for 23 years have been together 23 years and so and and i've been poly for half of those and having that, you know, at first when we moved away from each other, I was a little worried about it, honestly. And if anything, it's made us so much closer, our time so much more intentional. And I, even when I do date other people, I immediately gravitate back to him for the things that he does give. And I'm so much more appreciative for his qualities now, but I think so often we try to spread people, our partners so thin to take care of so many things that we need or parts of us that we want to have fulfilled when maybe one person can't do it all. I don't think we're really meant for that. And so now just, and, and even my, my partner, Ryan has said, I feel so much less pressure in areas that were 
my my expertise or things that I like to do or things that I was a fan of. And I feel so much less because I know that when you are with me and you come to me for things, there are things that I'm good at and things yeah. that we enjoy together. Right. And that they're, they excel at, right? Like yes. you're the for these things. That's yes. so cool. I really, I, that resonates with me. And as well, you mentioned intentionality of time. And when you go to that partner, you're like, this is, you are you, you're uniquely you and notice that I'm coming to you in this moment because I want you. I think that's so, so great. Um, I live with my husband and we get along, you know, and we travel together, we perform together, we, we produce together. So we're working really intensely together. And honestly, it's a lot. So it gets to the point where we just were in each other's space. We're in each other's faces. We're working in really high pressure environments on these large projects. And it's just so tense. And I noticed when one of us travels, we suddenly become closer, you know, and it's like this concept of, of I want to connect with you in this moment because I want to connect with you, not because I was going down to get a bagel and you asked me a question about the promo pics. You right, know? <laughs> right. Comes down to to making choices of who you spend your time with and and what that person's provide what you're providing for each other, right? That symbiotic relationship and that intention and and it makes you realize how unintentional we are with so many people and so much of our time. And it's kind of sad because you kind of go, oh, and you know now we've all become more accustomed to Zoom. I if you would have Facetimed me or Zoomed me seven months ago, I would have flipped you off and told you to fuck off. Like there's no way I would have answered. And now somebody FaceTimes me and I'm like, who's FaceTiming me? Like, I'm excited to see a face and hear a voice because we're all in this space and we just need, you know, connection. And so I think polyamory has taught me too that to be intentional with people, to like put my phone away and sit and give this space and time. And um, yeah, I think, I, I think uh, it would be fun to do some, some group chats and group uh Q&A talks about it because I think a lot of people have a lot of questions. They're just scared to answer. Ask. Totally. Yeah. I agree. You know, I've noticed too, you were mentioning earlier the the, the things that, that may be a little bit different now that we might carry over into after post-quarantine, post-COVID. Um, I've noticed that when we produce shows and we do a Q&A, my group Mod Carousel does a Q&A, you have the option to be kind of semi-anonymous of how you ask your questions. People are a lot more bold with what they ask. And I'm not saying people are being, um, they're sort of crossing boundaries, but I've noticed that if you were to open, have an open mic on a stage where you have, you have to physically be able to and the spotlight hits you on the back of the head while you're walking up these awkward stairs. You smell the pine saw and you look out and you see an ocean of faces. That's so much more high pressure than just typing in a chat box real quick. Like, oh, I've always been curious about this. Boom, enter. Questions asked. And then you have this whole group of people who are, are going to answer that question. So I'm curious to see if, if, if those who aren't actually, you know, producing things right now, but are, are appreciating the arts and are appreciating, um, I would say, what do you, do you call yourself an educator? Can I call you an educator? Um, I, I would call, yeah, I would say educator, mental health. Uh, yeah, yes, sure. Okay. People, you know, folks like, folks like you who are who are doing this kind of work, um, if they're going to open their minds a little bit so that in the future they won't be as afraid to open up to us or to open up themselves to other people, you know? Yeah. I'm curious to see 
revolution we're going to go through. I think that you're right. I think that there's some, a sort, you know, it's kind of the troll syndrome of people are mm-hmm. so much more likely to give you shit and troll you online because they can't, they're not in front of you. But I think right. that there's the other side of that. Like you said too, there's people that do have anxiety or, or want to ask more freely and feel kind of shame around it or what have you. And uh, I've even seen, I did a big speech two weeks ago for a private company and their whole, their whole, um, everybody that worked in, in the company was in the Zoom and in the chat and I could see them. So as I'm doing my speech, they're giving, they're like reacting to things I'm saying. And what I realized was, this is brilliant. And my agent was in there watching and she was like screenshotting like comments and stuff. So we could use them for like ticklers and things like that. And she was like, what's great is when the people are sitting in an audience watching you talk, it's all in their head. You're not hearing any of this. You're not seeing any of it, but this instant feedback that's quiet, that's not bothering my speech. It was kind of lovely to see that feedback immediately and Audra said the same thing. She said she saw people complimenting her, her boots and her crown and stuff. And she's like, there was a guy from like Iraq, like, and it was like, oh, I kind of, and you know, we call them hecklers in live shows. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's great that people can do it and not disturb the performers. Totally. I love that. Well, I just feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I want to get to the lightning round questions so you can have the rest oh. of your weekend. Um, so the first lightning round question is, what is your favorite swear word? Ooh, um, you know, fuck is a good one because it's so versatile, yeah. but I also, it's so overused. Yeah. So I mean, it's probably to- 95% of the answers to that question is, oh, is it really? <laughs> but like a lot of people say fuck like a certain like motherfucker or fucking shit. Or I get a lot of like, what's your fuck statement? <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I notice when I say it, I usually shorten the U, like the vowel of it. And I, I just really enjoy the beginning and the end of the word. Oh, I have not heard that before. Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> for that. All right. So in this quarantine, people are, I don't know about you, but my self-care, I'm having like some very specific self-care music, self-care movies. Is there anything you're going to like at the end of a day, or maybe it's been a long day? like an album that's really speaking to you right now or a movie that you're like, I have to turn this on or a TV show. Hmm. Not so much on the visual media right now, but as far as musically, um, you know, when the, and it depends on my mood. So if I'm feeling celebratory lately, I've been dipping back into nineties jams. Mm. So I started a playlist of, of old school nineties house music, uh, four on the floor. And I put it on Spotify. It's called good life. And it has this emoji on it. Oh my God. Yes. So I can, I can send you that link if you want. Uh, yeah, but then when I'm down. feeling like, uh, you know, the Brianna Taylor, um, situation, the, the, uh, court ruling happened a couple days ago and I was at work all day and I didn't go to the protest. By the time I got off of work, I was like, you know what? I have to go home and go to bed. I can't go out and get, pepper sprayed right now. I, I need to go to bed. And, uh, I, I put on some sort of aggressive, um, tech house by Monica Cruz, uh, Monica with a K Cruz with a K she's from Germany and she has this music. That's just, she's a composer, but also a DJ and she orchestrates, you know, a full two hours of high intensity, um, deep thought, but also just this driving beat. And for me, that's really kind of a soul massage when I'm feeling upset about something and it's raining outside. Monica Cruz. 
Wow. I love that. I mainly ask that question to get good music advice. So good. That's helpful. <laughs> okay. So this question, um, name maybe two people, two or three people, if you can think off the top of your head that have inspired you to be who you are today that are not, which I'm sure this will not be a problem for you, white, cis, heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. Because they have um, enough. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> so the first is Grace Jones. Uh, first and foremost. Behind you. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah, everywhere. Actually, I like my desk. Her picture is collaged on my desk. And I just love the way that um, Grace Jones decided who she wanted to be, regardless of what framework already existed. She wasn't trying to fit herself into a mold that was already made for her. She said, she showed up and was like, hey, I don't fit in here, but you're welcome. You'll love me. I'm here. You're welcome. And everyone was like, holy shit, who are you? And they worshiped her. And I just, I love that, that concept of being so comfortable with what you have to bring with the table, that you are a bright shining soul deserving of love and attention. And you know, that you have something important to say, just like the next person. And uh, that's super inspiring to me. Um, And the other, I'm trying to think it's, it's been a while. Um, Give me one second. <laughs> I love that you have somebody in mind. I love that. That just makes me smile. So, and Grace Jones is iconic. So, yes. Um, so it just sorry. Just I, I was about to type it in, and it popped up. Saul Williams. Saul Williams is a spoken word mm-hmm. spoken word poet. And I saw so a friend of mine who was uh, going to school in Alaska, where I grew up, saw this person at his university, and it you know, he sent me one of his albums It blew my mind. So he released a, an album called the rise and fall of Niggy Tardust, which, you know, if you're familiar with, um, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust is arguably an album about gender and exploration of gender and sexuality. Niggy Tardust is sort of the same, but more about race and ethnicity in the United States. So for me as a young, you know, 20 something year old who was just sort of discovering my Brown ambiguity, was sometimes an issue for people it was like you know a revelation (laughs) as you know going for more of the um the words and things and grace jones for more of a visual i love that saul williams is from kind of my generation loved the x-gen the hip-hop scene just kind of loved saul williams and so he's brilliant okay last question sorry go ahead no no you're good last question is if you could go back and have lunch with your younger self, what age would you be? What would you tell them? And more specifically, what would you have for lunch? What would you eat together? Huh. I think I would be, wow, these are so many. I'm like, it's, I'm uncovering <laughs> layers, layers. Layers, yeah. We're like 14 or 15. And I would be very cryptic and I would, I would have, let's see, what would we, we should probably go for something simple like um, pizza, but like a delicious, fancy, specific pizza. And I, we would get two, I would choose mine and then I would choose mine. (laughs) 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 And they'd probably be different. And I would, I would wait and everything would be very casual. We talk about the news or the weather. And then at a, maybe halfway through, I would stop and I would look myself in the eyes and I would be like, Hey, don't worry so much because everything is going to be great. 
And then I would drop it and I wouldn't make a big deal out of it and it wouldn't turn into a long conversation and then everything would be fine. That's, that's what I would do. I love that. But you know, didn't we all just kind of need that when we were younger of somebody to just go, I promise that things are going to get better for you. Stop worrying. I promise. I love that. It's so hard to believe though, you know, when you're living that reality at that point, like it's so hard to see, to know, because you don't technically know the future. It's hard to know that it's going to be great or that it's even going to be okay. But now, you know, you were just mentioning you're in your thirties. I have a friend that's about to be 30 and, and they're struggling with it. And I said, listen, let me tell you something. Twenties, you think, you know, everything thirties is when you realize you don't and you humble yourself and you start to learn. And then 40s are when you realize you don't give a fuck about what other people (laughs) think. And it's amazing. And you can release a lot. And then 50s are the new 40s. And then it just keeps going and getting better. So it's like, don't be scared of this, you know, space. And so I do, I do uh, think that all of us need to kind of look at our old younger selves and go, it's going to be, you're going to be all right. It's going to get easier. Well, can you tell people how to find you online and then also what your next upcoming virtual shows are? Because we'd love to be able to support you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So because things are sort of in a transitional state for myself right now, my usual website, which is theluminouspariah.com, that's my performer name, The Luminous Pariah, is not functional. I'm going to wait and use that as a school assignment as a designer. I'm going to make my remake my website. So mm-hmm. I'm using Linktree. It's a uh, L-I-N-K dot E. Uh, sorry, wait, how does it go? Linktree. So L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Luminous Pariah. And I'm using that to kind of list all of the things I'm doing, um, point fingers towards, you know, articles that are political right now, fundraisers for people, um, upcoming shows that I have, and all kinds of ways that you can support myself and my fellow artists, um, Mod Carousel, or in the Seattle community, or in the global cabaret community. So check out my Instagram. I would say that's the one that I'm always going to focus on because it's visual and I'm a visual person and it brings me a lot of joy. So even in the craziness of school and big life changes, my Instagram will probably still be um, a wonderful, vivid, colorful place to go and enjoy some effervescent luminous pariah. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being here and stay so, so safe. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. And I hope to have another one where I can learn more about your success as a poly person who's been doing this for ages Mm. and an educator. Yeah, well, maybe we'll build something around that. Let's think about it. Let's let's brainstorm on that because that could be fun, a fun conversation that maybe other people could learn from too. I love that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and all the episodes. I want to invite you to join us to continue this conversation online where there's an incredible organic community that's always ready to welcome you. You can find links to all of the social media platforms connected to this movement at my website, mariangelaabeo.com. If you have an idea for a topic or a guest you'd like to see on the podcast, please shoot me an email. Or if you'd like to apply to be a face in the Faces of Fortitude project, or maybe you want to discuss having a part of this movement in a city near you, please visit the website contact page, and I look forward to connecting with you. And until next time, please take care of yourselves and those around you. And by that, I mean, wash your damn hands, wear a fucking mask, 
defund the police, and continue fighting for the rights of Black lives everywhere, especially Black trans lives. And do your part to abolish all forms of systemic racism. I'll see you next time.